what is it that some appeals do, the way that some charities would approach it, that would just give them an off-the-scale result. And that's what's fascinating to me, because I'm obviously interested in storytelling, but how do you take that storytelling to the next level? And then there are a couple of examples, the ones we're going to pick and talk about today, where they absolutely smashed it, it went over 100,000, and you're looking thinking, wow, what did you do that was so incredible? I love this appeal because I can still remember a phrase from it, which was that the landmines were sensitive enough to be triggered by a child's footstep and powerful enough to rip apart a car. Welcome back to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 143. My name's Rob Woods, and this is the podcast for fundraisers who want ideas, examples, and maybe a dash of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. Now, as you know, as fundraisers, there are some things that affect results that are beyond our control, like the nature of our cause and whether that connects with the values and concerns of any given group. But then there are some things which are far more within our capacity to influence than we're sometimes aware. This was brought home to me in my recent conversation with Sally Flatman, who for many years was the producer for the BBC's Radio 4 Appeal. Across her career, Sally worked with charities to create more than 800 radio appeals, and some were much more successful than others, in some cases raising five times more than the average. So what were the most successful charities putting disproportionate energy into getting right? In this interview, Sally shares some of the patterns that stood out to her. So whether you want to maximise a media appeal at some point, or just as usefully in my opinion, if you'd like to get real stories to back up some valuable fundraising principles that frankly apply when asking for donations in lots of other situations, be it events, individual giving, partnerships or major giving, I hope you're going to find Sally's discoveries valuable. Hello Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's really my pleasure. I so enjoyed our chats the other day. I learned so much already that I hope <laughs> our listeners will benefit from uh, your considerable experience in this area. So for quite a few years, many years, you were the producer of the BBC Radio 4 Appeal. And across that time, I already discovered you learned quite a lot about certain patterns that recur in the charities that tend to do pretty well or very well with that opportunity and those less so. Now, inevitably, different charities have different sizes, different well-known brands, different causes which at a given point in time are or are not more interesting to people. But even within that, I was just really taken aback by our chat the other day by these certain themes and patterns you noticed and frankly, things that are within the charity's power to effect. So we're going to talk about that in depth and maybe hear some examples about some of the standout ones for you and some things that we could all learn. I know that you have moved on from that role now and you're doing various freelance projects and one of which really caught my eye. It's a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current podcast? Of course. So um, you're right. I have listened to, worked on scripts for hundreds of BBC Radio 4 Peels. Um, I began as the Radio 4 Peels producer when I came back from my second maternity leave and I was there until my daughter left primary school. So that gives you a bit of an idea and there are 52 a year. I'll let you do the maths. And I then became the BBC's charity appeals advisor whilst my daughter was going through secondary school and I left when she was 18. So I have seen a lot of appeals and I think I am the kind of person who's always searching to find that pattern. What is it that, that some appeals 
do, the way that some charities would approach it, that would just give them an off the scale result. And, and that's what's fascinating to me, because I'm obviously interested in storytelling. But how do you take that storytelling to the next level? Um, when I left, yes, I do now do a podcast. It's called Our Plant Stories as in O-U-R, Our Plant Stories, it basically brings together twin passions, which is radio, audio, storytelling, and plants, which I've always, always loved. I've done a first series. I'm currently editing a second series. And what's fascinating to me is that those plants are a way to tell all kinds of stories of bereavement, of refugees, of family, because, of course, plants don't move, but people do. And they take them, they transport them all over the world. So you, it's an avenue, really. It's a way into storytelling. And I'm having a really fun time doing it. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the through line from all of that and to our main topic today is the power of storytelling mm -hmm. and just what a difference a good story can make to how someone feels and then their th thought process that day and, and how they might choose to behave, whether it's in the context of finding meaning or understanding something about their life or their garden or about the wider environment, or whether it's about a cause that, that they might care about. Completely. It's about how do you transport people? Because, you know, we, we share information through stories, don't we? That's how we tell people about our lives. That's how we explain our lives. And so if you can find those stories which, you know, I think really comes down to curiosity, basically. Are you curious? Are you going to go looking and asking those questions? And I've been paid my entire work career to just ask questions, sometimes ask stupid questions, because, you know, there's no point in assuming knowledge on the part of your audience. If, if you ask such an incredibly complicated question that the answer is going to be also incredibly complicated, you've just excluded the audience who are trying to learn or understand this. So I've had a whole career which allowed me just to go around asking questions. And I was one of those five-year-olds, my mum says, basically, when they used to say, does anyone got a question? Her heart would slightly sink as she could see my hand going up. And it would be like, oh, no, here we go. And so I am curious. I'm curious about people. I'm curious what motivates them. I'm curious about stories. But I think in a way we all are. It's just sometimes kind of, you know, unlocking that that curiosity or that radar to start kind of searching for them. Yeah. And I'm keen to get into some of the things you've noticed about how some charities do that, frankly, better than others in this special opportunity. Before we get into that, I think it's helpful if you could just briefly explain what the Radio 4 Appeal is, because not all of our listeners will necessarily know. So the Radio 4 Appeal is one of the oldest programmes, one of the oldest radio programmes on the BBC, many, 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 many years ago. It was called The Week's Good Cause. It goes back to the 1920s. And it's where the BBC gives charities airtime, basically. It's two minutes and 50 seconds, which, without sounding too nerdy, is about 420 words. And they have the opportunity to make an appeal. In order to be granted that slot, charities have to apply. You have to be registered with the UK Charity Commission and charities will apply and there will be a number of Radio 4 appeals and there will also be a number of television lifeline appeals and they will be allocated. And then once those charities have been, if they are successful in the application process and granted an appeal, they will then go through a production process where they will work with the BBC producer who will help them to craft that script. They will then find their presenter, they will record it within the BBC and then that appeal will go out on air. And of course, one of the beauties of it is charities of different sizes can apply. I've noticed that many of them seem to be relatively small and it's impossible to compare apples with oranges. Just some of them are different size, different brand, different audience. 
And yet it just is the case that across a given year, those 50 or 52, I've noticed there is a, a huge variety in how much money gets brought in. And interestingly, it's not necessarily size that is the biggest factor. I, no, I might not at all. mention later some things I learned from Joe Baker, who's the chief executive of Child Rescue Nepal. In episode three, four years ago, Joe came on this show and she talked about some things she'd learned and things she thinks contributed to the success of her charity, a very small charity. At the time, they were one of the top three in totals raised for that 12-month period. At the time, I think it was something like 30 or 40,000 at a time when, you know, you were doing quite well to have raised 10 or 12 or 15. And I think you were saying to me the other day that most charities, it's quite hard work and they have done pretty well if they managed to raise 20 or even 30,000. Is that roughly... I mean, it is. I mean, we we always have charities say to us, you know, what what what's what can we expect? What's the average? And we'll say to them, well, the difficulty with that is that some will raise quite a small amount and be very disappointed, and we empathise with that. That that happens. And then you will say to them, but you are still getting your message in front of over two million people. Then there will be ones where you'll look at it and you go, yeah, twenty, thirty, forty thousand. That's fantastic. And then there are a couple of examples. Well, there are examples more than a couple, but the ones we're going to pick and talk about today, where. They absolutely smashed it. It went over 100,000. And you're looking thinking, wow, what did you do that was so incredible? And I think um, there are just some ideas that we're going to talk about and share, which is also about kind of attitude and the way that you approach the whole process, which is one of the things I guess I have observed. And that's not to say that those who don't raise as much, I mean, there are, there are causes that are harder to raise funds for. We all know that. For example, on Radio 4, I always knew that prison charities would do well they would do well because the appeals go out, the, the biggest audience is at five to eight on a Sunday morning. So you're between a programme about religion and ethics going up to the hour and after the hour is the Sunday service. So think about that audience, forgiveness, that whole kind of side of them would support those charities. So some of those did very well. And it wasn't always what you expected to do well either. I think the examples we want to talk about and some of the ideas we want to talk about in this podcast are more ways in which you can really amplify your appeal, where you can go the extra mile. And they're not massively onerous. I mean, it, it, you would see it when someone had a real passion for it, when somebody was absolutely so focused that they were going to keep going and keep going, take every bit of advice they could possibly get and go beyond that to really try to craft their appeal. That's what we're going to share, I think. Yeah, and... I am just reminded of two of the many things Joe Baker told me in that original interview. And one of them, which ultimately spoke of their hunger, how willing they were to work to make the most of this wonderful opportunity. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, one of the things we did was in advance, we prepared, we wrote to all of our existing supporters telling them it was coming up and we sent them postcards that they could share on with their friends at the time of the appeal, asking them to get involved. And I'm guessing many charities that get this opportunity don't do that because it is hard. And maybe at some level they thought that Radio 4 was going to do the work. And what, if you're getting access to two million listeners, well, surely, what, do I have to do this as well? So to me, that charity went really next level in maximising the opportunity and influencing what they could influence to the nth yeah. degree. Yeah, because they're almost starting back before it even begins in a way, aren't they? And they're taking their existing donors 
on a journey with them as they go through that appeal. You feel you're part of it. And I, and I think all of the things we're going to talk about today, you know, you don't, this doesn't have to be specifically for a BBC appeal. You can use this in lots of campaigns, in lots of things you do. And I use it on the podcast. You know, I have a, a small number of people who I seem to be quite loyal, who read the weekly blog. We've just done one year. This today is the anniversary, a year of the, the blog being written, or I'm for me writing the blog. And what's, you know, those, those, those people who are there listening to it, reading it, are hopefully then sharing that with other people. And that's word of mouth. And that's very powerful. I, I can remember my mum is 95. And she did that point where, do you know, innocent smoothies used to knit woolly hats for the for the bottles. And you would get a letter thanking you. She would share that letter all over the place. And, and the same with um, the National Youth Orchestra. She gives a small donation to them. They send her a letter telling her how the money's being spent. She shares that letter everywhere. So I think the power of that and, and is, is something to think about. I mean, before we even get to the thank you at the other end, which I think is crucial, the actual telling people what you're doing and taking them on that journey with you, because they are excited too. They were excited too that you've got this campaign and you're going to reach out to other people. So I, I think, yeah, People like Joe were absolutely going going the extra mile before they even reached the, the briefing, I should think. <laughs> yeah. Hi, it's Rob. And if you find this podcast helpful, but you like to go much deeper than is possible in these short half-hour episodes, then our in-house courses for fundraising teams are designed to help. For instance, our popular Storytelling and Influence Day will help your whole team get more confident and more skillful when talking and writing to supporters so that they feel more connected to the difference their gift would make. To find out more or just request a chat, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. So you've heard literally hundreds and hundreds of these and you've worked with hundreds of charities on these. You appear to be extremely smart and, and interested in this stuff. But frankly, for our listener, even if Sally was an idiot, she couldn't work on six, seven, eight hundred appeals for the Radio 4 and not notice some patterns, not notice certain things that are disproportionately important. So, Sally, could you tell us one of the ones that did raise a lot more than many and just tell us the gist of what it was, but in particular, what are a couple of the factors that you think might have helped that success? So one I would pick um, was MAG, Minds Advisory Group. Um, this goes back to 2017. And from the very outset, I can remember meeting those, the two women who were doing that appeal, and they were just passionate. They were absolutely determined to make the most of this entire experience. You could just tell that from, from the outset. And so a couple of things they did, they listened to the Radio 4 appeals at the time at which they went out on a Sunday morning, which is very early. Because, you know, we can all sit in our offices, you know, we can we can be listening to something, at, at, you know, any time of the afternoon, you know, when it's convenient to us. That is not the same as putting yourself in the shoes of the person who is going to be listening to this appeal. That means you've got to shuffle up at, you know, 7.55, go downstairs, put the kettle on, realise that if it hasn't grabbed you, the kettle is now obscuring the sound of that appeal. And you're going to, if you really think it's good, maybe you switch the kettle off because you want to listen. If you really haven't been grabbed in the first sentence, you carry on and you're, you're out with your cup of tea. So you've really got to grab people very swiftly. And I think by putting yourself in the shoes of the listener, um, in this case, they really, really wanted to understand what they had to do because they only had 420 words. That's not many words. And you've really got to make every word count. So that was one of the first things they did. I 
love this appeal because I can still remember a phrase from it, which was that the landmines were sensitive enough to be triggered by a child's footstep and powerful enough to rip apart a car. Now, we often say that the pictures on radio are better than anywhere else, better on the TV. And that's because as soon as someone says that sentence in my head, I have an image. And and even at the outset, they said to me, you know, we were thinking about, do, do we use a sound effect? But once they'd written that sentence, they knew they didn't need to do a sound effect of any sort. That sentence just paints a picture in your head of what a landmine is capable of. So they thought incredibly hard about every sentence. Every sentence they put together had to work for them, had to create those images. They thought very hard about the presenter. And, and I think this is maybe applicable to lots of charities when you're looking at who do you want to present your appeal or, or head your campaign or talk for you or come to an event. They could be a patron. That's great if they already are. But sometimes those kind of events are an opportunity to find somebody new. And, you know, obviously, if it was a BBC event, then maybe it made it a little bit easier. But I think actually people are willing if you can find them. But you've got to Google, you've got to dig around to see where might that tangential connection be to that person who might be interested. So in their case, they chose a guy called Colin Freeman, who was a chief foreign correspondent for The Telegraph. Immediately, they knew that that would resonate with their audience, that Radio 4 audience at that time in the morning. Again, they thought about who is listening to Radio 4. It's a older end of our audience. They're curious, they're intelligent, they're questioning. They're the kind of people who say, do not put music behind an appeal. I do not want you to try and manipulate my emotions. If I want to give, I will give. Don't try and, you know, change it with sad music. So they're discerning, you know, they want information. So Colin Freeman was great. He had an authority of a journalist, but in the case of this story, he was also a witness. So he had met the person in the story. He had met Sadler in northern Iraq. So he had firsthand talked to this father, and that was another point. He was another father. And so, again, you tick a kind of box in a way. You're saying, OK, I trust this person. They know what they're talking about. They've got an authority. They've been a witness. Um, they've been impacted by this story. And then as they worked through the appeal, they talked about how the landmine issue was almost first brought to our attention by a Diana. And immediately in our heads, I can see that image of Diana wearing the, the landmine mask. You can see that photograph, that image that would all have been known by that audience. They worked on what they did, what the problem was. They started off very clearly by describing a scene that any of us would know. So Sadler's at home, he's got his son and his daughter, they're at home, they're playing music, they're dancing, they're laughing. It's Any of us can, can picture that. And then his son goes out to tend the sheep and they hear an enormous explosion which rings around the village and the father rushes outside towards the sound of the explosion and his son has been killed instantly. So that's where you start on their appeal. You've, you know, you're, you're listening to something, you can imagine it, you can imagine it in your own home and then suddenly you're transported to this tragedy. So you're understanding it. And then they start to move towards what they do, why they need to do it, how they train miners, how the amount of money they need to train somebody to demine. So it took you on a bit of a journey. But what I think was also really impressive was often charities, when you're, you know what you're doing, you know the story, you, you know your work so well that it's hard to come at it in that fresh way sometimes. And so they recorded their scripts and they recorded a version of it and then they didn't play it to someone else in the office or, you know, a colleague in fundraising. They found somebody in the age profile of the listeners at that time to Radio 4 and played it to them. 
because it's really a point of, do they have questions? Are they confused? Where, you, you know, and this actually is what we used to do as radio producers, okay? You would make a programme and if you were lucky, you'd find another radio producer and you'd play it to them. And sometimes there'd be a particularly beautiful moment that you absolutely loved. And you could see they're totally glazed over. They weren't even listening to it. And it was like, well, you may love that bit, but it's clearly not working. You've got to have to cut it out. So it's about having someone and really watching their attention during it. And that's the level of detail they were going to. They, you know, they were prepared to play it to other people like that. Do you know, you've just reminded me of a, another memory I have, which is a talk which was given by Louise, who did work for Minds Advisory Group yep. and was involved. And the bit that I remember is she said that they were so determined to make use of the existing good sense and principles that you at Radio 4 had learned mm. that she studied that, wrote it all up, and then went back and got, I don't know, eight or ten past Radio 4 appeals for which she knew how much money each raised. And then she did like a game show with her colleagues to try and sell them in, potentially away from curse of knowledge bias towards really doing the things that are effective. As she did a game show where people had to guess how much each of those 10 Radio 4 appeals raised. And each time she'd give them the answer and explain why she thought why. And by hearing the fourth, fifth or sixth, many people were getting really savvy about the kinds of factors. They were seeing the syntax of, you know, oh, I, I think... Louise, that one won't raise so much because they did too much talking at the beginning about the mission and the strategy of the charity before they got to the story. Whereas this one will have raised twice as much because they let the story do the talking. And many fundraisers listening to this know how hard it is, um, no disrespect to chief executives, but how hard it is to get a senior leader in a charity who's got to do a, a talk at an event for your supporters to refrain from doing the big picture strategic mission statement style talk because of knowledge and just start thanking their supporters with a story which encapsulates why we're here it's quite hard to get your leader to do that because all day long they're needing to be more of a right brain thinking strategically whereas i think it's genius the the playful way with which louise set us up to learn and therefore probably play along with and take the good advice that you had spent hundreds of episodes learning. I think that's, uh, we often used to say to people, get your colleagues a cup of tea, piece of cake, get them to sit down for half an hour and listen to some of these appeals and think about that, exactly that, because that is the way that you will learn and you'll start to spot those patterns and start to see what works. I mean, the funny thing about appeals is you can, with anything, you can never really know what's going to motivate people to give. You know, when I first started making the Radio 4 appeal, way back, I'd been a Radio 4 features producer. So I was just wanted an excuse to make another programme, basically. Um, but I found people who'd given and they were extraordinary. You know, there was an amazing woman who, when she was 18, she had worked in a hospital and her job had been to tell people where they were going to go to the next the next ward, where they were being sent to. And when she told a particular man that he had been sent to a particular hospital, she had effectively given him his cancer diagnosis because in those days you weren't told. She was now in her 80s and for her, giving to the Cancer Laryngectomy Trust was an atonement for what she had done when she was 18, because he was so devastated and so was she. And then on the other hand, you had a, a doctor who was 
standing on a Sunday morning, washing up in his kitchen. So he was sitting on a legacy from a friend of his who had died. He had to give it away in this guy's will. And he gave it to the charity he heard whilst he was washing up in his kitchen. One charity got a donation. Well, several charities get donations a couple of years later. Or someone says, actually, now I've got money to give. So I think you don't know who's listening and therefore, that's why it's even more important that you really hit them with the, the things they're going to remember, the, the story that's going to stay with them. And that's why we used to do an exercise in the briefing where we would literally get charities to get into partnerships and we'd say to person A, right, you know, tell person B, why do you why do you come to work? What is it that motivates you? And then we'd switch them over and get them just to be listeners and talkers. And I do this in training because I think that when you do that, you almost realise what sticks in your brain? And it's not always the facts and figures, because obviously the danger of putting facts and figures sometimes into a into an appeal is that someone stops listening because they're now doing the maths, mm. you know, rather than actually hitting emotionally. Whereas with Sadler, you, you're, you're just in that picture. You can see the devastation on that father's face when seconds before they were just in his house, they were just dancing. So the, the, just that tiny moment of time that changes everything. So, yeah. Sally, I wonder... You know, across these years, there's been several ones which so impressed you. What's another one? Because I know that that first one, I think it was something like 97,000, which is at least four times. Phenomenal, phenomenal amount of money. Yeah. And I think it's that thing, isn't it? If you're going to, it's a bit like it, it, when I became the charity appeals advisor, you know, you're, you're trying to work out how can we get this better? And you're pushing on not just one door, on lots of doors. You know, how can we brief better? How can we bring in charities to brief other charities? You know, how can we make it clearer that we want charities to make the most of this opportunity? You've got to push on lots of different doors. Same with the podcast. You know, now you've got to kind of push on lots of different doors. How can I improve the storytelling? How can I improve finding the audience how can I improve the website so it actually gives something back to people how can I find voices that I don't think are always heard um because for me audio is about giving people a voice that's the power of audio and transporting people um so yeah I mean there are hundreds of examples when I was flicking through the website looking at all the ones and going back quite a long way and seeing ones I'd made and a lot of them you know I can remember but I think another good example and we've done an overseas charity let's do a UK charity was um Keir Parkinson's and I think again what was really interesting about them is they again absolutely understood the connection between the presenter and the audience so the presenter is Paul Mayhew Archer who himself has Parkinson's now he begins that appeal by basically saying you know I used to produce radio for comedy shows and he talks about I'm sorry I haven't a clue old Harry's game Absolutely fantastic one, Old Harry's Game. If you've never heard it, it's incredible. Um, and he also co-wrote The Vicar of Dibley. So instantly, you know, we're there. We're like, oh, OK, yeah, I remember those programmes. I've listened to those programmes. It's also very much in his voice. I think that's another key for me. You know, I, I once, there was once an appeal where somebody gave to um, appeal. They, they wrote the donation. They went, I have no idea what Archbishop Desmond Tutu was appealing for, but I've just given because it's Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you would, wouldn't you? But sometimes, you know, you can look at the script and then you look at the person in the studio and think, mm, they don't quite match and they, they can't. Whereas the way that they had written it for Paul Mayhew Archer, um, it had comedy in it, which it was extraordinary. He talks about um, his consultant is called Michelle Who and how wonderful it is to have Doctor Who on your side. And you know, he talks about how, you know, his condition has, has reached a point where, you know, he can open a bar of chocolate, but he can't do the washing up. And, you know, he found ways which were extraordinary. Or, or, but that's him, isn't it? That, that's, he's, he's a comedian. He writes, in the, that's the scripts he writes. And 
it's just very honest. It was very authentic. I, I remember it also partly because it was right at the beginning of COVID. So it's 2020, went out in April, but we were recording it in March and we were suddenly aware that we we couldn't bring Paul into a radio studio. That was just not going to work. It, it would be ridiculous, you know, it would, too many risks there for him to do that. So it was one of the first appeals that was recorded on a phone during COVID. And he talks about that. He says COVID must be uppermost in people's minds. But he was Parkinson's and I have recorded this on my phone. Um, now that appeal made 108,000, which is, again, phenomenal. A lot of us may know somebody with Parkinson's. It's a cause that the people may be close to their hearts, but 108,000. Again, it was just they had really thought about the presenter. They had thought about the message. They had given us an insight into someone's life living with that condition in a way that, you know, the, the bar of chocolate paints a picture for us and, and helps us to get a little bit of understanding. And then once we've got that, we are then taken on the journey of what the charity is trying to do, how it is trying to cure. Again, I think it was just they they went the extra mile. They thought really, really hard. It wasn't just let's find anybody who we think can front this. It's, it's how do we find the right person for this audience and and Paul Mayhew Archer for the Radio 4 appeal was was just perfect yeah do you know just uh, while you were talking and I'm picturing bar of chocolate and washing up and how I feel mm. about those two things mm. and how mm. motivated mm. I would be that everyday detail such a simple thing some people wouldn't even call it a story that it's interesting to talk about uh, you know a, tying a tie or a, a bunch of keys or a bar of chocolate but that's why usually these best stories whether it's for an appeal or for when you're talking to a donor over coffee, or whether you're writing it down in a Christmas appeal or in a trust fundraising application, the most interesting and often powerful moving bits of any of these stories tends to come if somehow we can find a way to have real conversations with people who are actually on the front line. Exactly. I think it's because those tiny details are all helping us to paint the picture and that's what it's about, isn't it? You need that kind of complete picture. And I remember there was a a charity that were talked about a child having to walk to school and it, it took them an hour. And OK, that's the child walking to school. It takes an hour. That's fine. But then if you take in what time of the morning, what's it like when they wake up? They're waking up at dawn. And then you talk about the terrain they're walking over. We're talking about is it is it built up? Is it actually a rural path? Does the path get washed away in the in the rains? You know, you start to actually really break down that journey then that journey becomes a whole different thing in the in the mind of the person who's listening to you. And I think that's also about, we used to say to charities, you know, go and try and sit and have a cup of tea with your presenter because that's how you will find those facts, things that they take for granted. If you can just be curious and ask that next question of the person who's going to do that, come and talk, speak for you at your presentation, because they won't think those things are necessarily as important as you will when you start to listen to them. So somehow you're kind of drawing out that that story and trying to get those details. And, you know, if you're if you're struggling, it, it, you just go back to the basic who, what, when, where, why. If you ask really simple questions, just be curious, then you will find yourself drawing out those little details. And, and it's those details that really bring a situation for me, a situation to life. Sally, thank you so much for making time. I wish we could go on and on because there's so many stories you've got to share. But for now, you've covered so much ground. Stories, lots of practical tips to help our fundraisers. 
I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. As you hopefully can tell, I've loved working with charities during my career and all the best to those who are working out there. Thanks, Sally. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed hearing Sally's insights and examples. If you want to hear more from Sally and some wonderful stories inspired by plants and gardening, do check out her brilliant podcast, Our Plant Stories, on Apple Podcasts. I'll put a link to that and to her blog post all about applying for a BBC Radio Appeal, as well as a summary and transcript of this show in the episode notes on the podcast section of our website. Now, if you think this episode would help other people, please do share it on with your team and with other charities so that we can help as many good causes as possible. Thank you so much for your help. And if the ideas we talked about in this episode resonate for you, but you found it's often not easy to get your colleagues to apply these kinds of principles to their fundraising, our in-house team training sessions will help. For example, we've been running our popular Storytelling and Influence course for over a decade, during which time we've helped literally hundreds of fundraising teams to improve their confidence and skill when talking and writing to supporters. And across that time, we've honed techniques, which mean that we don't just give your team information, we take them through a tried and tested process where they experience the power of communicating their cause in ways which are much more moving than they're able to do before the session. And we found that once a team has experienced this more powerful way of communicating, it becomes so much easier for everyone to apply these powerful techniques in their ongoing fundraising, which means income tends to go up. To find out more about our in-house team days or any of our other courses, Brightspot Members Club or Mastery Programs, check out the information on our website, brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. Finally, I know there's a strong chance that you've already subscribed to the Fundraising Bright Spot show, but if not, please do hit that button now. I'm really excited about the new episodes we're releasing in the next few weeks, and I don't want you to miss those. Do let us know what you think about the show. On Twitter, Sally is at Flatman Sally, and I am at Woods underscore Rob, and we're both on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. Good luck with your fundraising. And I can't wait to share some more Bright Spot stories with you very soon. Mm-hmm.